I, uh, I always get, you may have noticed, maybe, maybe not, but I get a little emotional when Karen's not here, you know. It's not about the cancer, it's just I miss her. like part of me is not here. <clears throat> uh, some of you may remember a couple months ago I shared with you that Karen loves me for, I don't know, 10,000 reasons or more, I'm sure, <laughs> at least. It's kind of like it is, you know, with all you married couples out there. You know, you can't count all the reasons that you love your spouse. Um, um, innumerable reasons. Does anybody remember why I said that Karen, one of the reasons Karen loves me so much? Anybody remember? <laughs> because I love chick flicks, you remember? Because I love a good romance. This is one reason that she loves me. One of thousands and thousands, literally thousands of reasons that she loves me. And I told you my favorite love scene in a movie. Does anybody remember what that was? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It's in my notes, yeah. Okay. Uh, Adam has it in his notes. He's a good boy. Um, and it, you remember it's the one with Kevin Costner. You remember uh, Robin says to Lady Marion, you, you've got to warn King Richard, your cousin, because the Sheriff of Nottingham is plotting to overtake the kingdom. And, and you've got to get word to him. And Lady Marion says... Lady, Lady Marion says, this would be very dangerous. There's Nottingham has spies everywhere. I could lose all that I have. Robin says, will you do it for your king? And Lady Marion says, no. What does she say? Anybody remember? I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you. Don't you love that? I want to make sure I got the verbiage correct, so I, I, I popped the movie in. I own this movie. I popped it in Friday just to watch that one scene. <laughs> Tears rolling down my cheek again. Uh, but who doesn't want to be loved like this? Who doesn't want to be in a romance like that? I'll do it for you. I could lose everything, but I'll do it for you, Lady Marion says. Okay, who knows how the movie ends? Anybody? You know how it ends? Okay. They do get married. But in the interim, uh, Nottingham has kidnapped Lady Marion and is forcing her to marry him. Right? And so Robin does what any love-struck male would do. He charges uh, the castle. He's hopelessly outnumbered. He, he, he's catapulted over a wall. He smashes through a window and he confronts the Sheriff of Nottingham and he fights him in a sword duel to the death. And he kills the Sheriff of Nottingham. Isn't that what you would do? Ivano? See, Ivano knows. Ivano knows what I'm talking about. Kirk, isn't that what you would do? Absolutely. And he fights him to the death. And then Robin and Lady Marion, they fall together. You know? And Lady Marion says, You came for me. And Robin says, Does anybody know? <laughs> Robin says, I would die for you. I love that story. Is that not perfect? I mean, come on, who doesn't want to be in on a romance like that? And what I want to say to you, if you're a Christian, you are. 
You're in on a romance like that. This is how God loves His people. It's an awesome thing. So why, I think I've shared this with you before, but why do fairy tales and love stories endure? Why do they endure? Because they have the best part of human nature in them. The best ones do, right? And they have these, these, these essential elements of honor and virtue and integrity, honesty, fidelity, courage and valor, daring, faithfulness, selflessness, sacrifice, and expensive love. Who doesn't want to live their life like that? Who doesn't want to be in a relationship like that? This is why, these, this is why fairy tales endure and, and love stories endure at some level Every woman in here wants to be Lady Marion and every man in here wants to be Robin at some level, right? Love like that. I like what Frederick uh, Buchner said. The world of the Gospel is the world of fairy tale with one notable exception. What would the notable exception be? It's true. And he says... Uh, it, the Gospel is true. Not only did it happen once upon a time, but it is happening still and it will never stop happening. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If, we're, if we belong to Christ, we're in on the sacred romance. Our warrior shepherd has come for us. He has given His life for us. He has redeemed us. We are eternally secure in Him. We're in on the sacred Romance. He has come for His bride and He has saved her to the uttermost. And we are secure and saved forever in His loving arms. As John begins to close his first letter to the church that we call 1 John, the Holy Spirit prompts him to remind us of God's great love for us. We've talked about it so much as we've gone through this beautiful little letter. John has told us over and over and over again how the Christian is to love. How we're to love the brethren. In fact, how loving the brethren is really one of the essential signs that we're truly converted. The born-again believer will love the brethren. And John's been saying it to us over and over and over again. But for these next few verses, he reminds us how much God loves us. It's right there in verse 6. This is the one who came. Just like Lady Marion said, you came for me. Robin said, I died for you. What do you think all these love stories got in their plot? They get them from the Bible. They get them from our awesome God. So do you see it? He came for us. He came for us. This is the One who came. Jesus Christ. He's come for His bride. Can we talk about it too much? I know I talk about it a lot. This infinite condescension of Jesus Christ. But can we talk about it too much? Can we ever meditate on that truth too much? Can we be in awe enough that God has come down in the flesh and been nailed to a tree? Can we, can we ever worship enough? Will we ever grow weary of worshiping this awesome God who's come down to save His people? Yes, you've understood the Bible correctly. I am is laying in a manger. <laughs> Adonai is teaching in the temple. Elohim is preaching on the mount. And El Shaddai is nailed to the tree. 
you've understood correctly. It's God. He's not only Emmanuel, God with us, He is God for us. I love that. He's, he's not only God with us, he's, love, he's God for us. And He's come for us. I love what John Piper, as I was thinking about these things this, this, this week, you know, Piper says it right. If you're really understanding the Bible, it'll blow your mind. Blow your mind. God loves His people like this. He loves His people like this. As I was studying too, I, my mind kept going back to Jesus' first miracle. Does anybody remember what Jesus' first miracle was? He changed the water to wine. You know, I've actually read commentaries that say, well, this is a frivolous use of power. <laughs> Isn't that an oxymoron? <laughs> a frivolous miracle? Um, but, I, I mean, let's be honest, though. It's not on par with, with feeding 5,000 from a few uh, fish and, and loaves. It's, it's not on par with giving a man born blind sight. Is it? Is it, is it on par with, with calling a dead man out of the tomb? Why does Jesus... Why is His first miracle at a wedding? And why is He turning water to wine? We studied this as we went through the Gospel of John. Does anybody remember? The groom has come for His bride. This is what Jesus is saying at this venue, at this wedding. The groom is here. The groom is here. I've come for my beloved. And He's going to turn the water to wine. That dead religion, that dead, stale, meaningless, useless religion of men. He's bringing joy. He's bringing the born-again life for His bride. What an awesome, awesome thing. I love that, I love that miracle. There's a ton I can say about that, but I, <laughs> I'll move on. Look at verse 7. And I'm going to, I'm going to read... I'm going to read well, I'm just going to read these verses, and I want you to listen. You heard Nick read it, but I'm going to read it again. I want you to listen for the word that's repeated nine times. And then this is a test. You will be graded. I want to know what the word is that's repeated nine times as I get through reading um, from verse 7 here down to 12. Or pardon me, down to 11. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. The one who does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning His Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in the Son. What's the key word here? Nine times. Nine times God says, witness. Listen, friends, when you see the Lord re repeat a, a, a word like that, that many times, in one section of Scripture, He's saying something to us that He does not want us to miss or misunderstand. Okay? He does not want us to miss this. Not only has God come, verse 6, but He has given witness that He has come. Irrefutable witness. 
He hasn't left us groping in the dark. Not only did He come, He's left good testimony that He's come. He's left an irrefutable witness that the groom has come for His bride. He has compiled and protected and preserved what for us? For the people of God. What has He preserved for the people of God? His Word. His Word. He has left a witness for His people. We will not grope in the dark. He has given us all that we need. You remember when we studied John uh, over the last several years, uh, what was the Holy Spirit's purpose in prompting John to write the Gospel of John? You remember John 20, 31. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life through His name. Okay? So God has given us witness that we might what? Believe and have life. What is the purpose for which the Holy Spirit has prompted John to write 1 John? We're going to see it next week. I'm not going to make it there this week. It's verse 13. On, right there in chapter 5. These things I've written to you uh, who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God has left His witness that we may believe, that we may have life, and that we may what? Know we have life. This is important. This is not a, a, an inconsequential text here. This is very important. Why does God want us to know we have life? Why does He want us to be assured? Why does He want us to be fully persuaded? Does anybody know? We've talked about this several times as we've gone through uh, 1 John, which is the book of assurance. Because a fully persuaded Christian will live, will live a Hebrews 11 life. That's why. A fully persuaded Christian, a Christian fully assured that God has come for him, that God has loved him, that God has saved him, that God holds him eternally, and that he is secure forever, no matter what hap happens in a temporal sense. The fully persuaded Christian has license to live Hebrews 11. This is why He wants us to know. This is why He says, I've left my witness for my people. He's setting you free to live it. I love this. This is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what the Bible is about. This is why we preach the Bible in this church. We don't, we don't recite poetry. We don't talk about current events. We don't get involved in politics. I could care less about it. We preach the testimony of God. I've told you a hundred times. Everything else in the world is speculation. Everything else in the world is speculation. So we teach, we, we teach and preach the Bible. It's what God says. And you know... Sometimes I have people that they don't come back because we, I, I preach a little strong sometimes and people, you know, they're not used to that and I'm somewhat of an anomaly, I know, probably in Europe. Uh, and, and people don't like it. People sometimes, they just don't come back and people sometimes share this with me, you know. But that's the price I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to pay that price that some will leave, that the body will be built up and edified. That the true believer will want to hear what God says. 
and He will want to incorporate in His life. Friends, if we get down to three people, I'm going to preach the Word. That's what we're going to do here. That's always what we're going to do here. We're never not going to do that. It's His testimony to His people. And we love it. And we're always going to preach it. We're always going to do that. Look at verse 9. For the witness of God is this. He has borne witness to His Son. This is what the Bible is all about. Now, if uh, you go back to the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, how many witnesses does it take to confirm the truth of a matter? Does anybody know? This is Old Testament law. Two. Or what? Three. The Old Testament law says, Deuteronomy 19.15, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter is confirmed. Jesus actually uh, repeats this in the New Testament as He's talking about church discipline. Paul says it in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, and he also says it again in 1 Timothy 5. It takes two or three witnesses to confirm the truth of a matter. How many witnesses is Jesus, pardon me, is God giving us here in the text. How many does He say He's giving us? Three. Verse 8. He's giving us three witnesses. And I want to make sure you get the picture. It's like God's bringing His case. It's like God is in the witness stand. God is bringing His case and He's brought three witnesses. Okay? He's brought three witnesses to corroborate that He has come and that He loves His people. He's saving His people. And who Jesus Christ is, He is the Messiah. And so He brings a maximum witnesses required to establish the truth of the matter. He brings three witnesses. And there are about 50 sermons here, but I'm going to make it really short for us. There it is in verse 8. There are three witnesses. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And like I say, I could say a whole lot about this, but I'm going to make it really brief. How has the Spirit given testimony? We just got through talking about it. How has the Spirit given testimony? What has the Spirit given us? What is the Holy, who's the author of this? The Holy Spirit has given us the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has given us the Word of God. The Holy Spirit has given us the truth. Look what it says in verse 7. It is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is what? The truth. The Spirit is not a truth. The Spirit is the truth. The only truth. There's only one. We are not relativists in here. No true Christian is. There's one truth. One truth for all of mankind. It's the truth that the Spirit gives us in the Word of God. The water. What is the water? There's really no disagreement among conservative theologians that this is a reference to the baptism of Jesus. What two things happened when Jesus was baptized? Does anybody remember? How did God confirm that this was His Son? He audibly spoke, this is My Son with whom I am well pleased. What else happened? The Holy Spirit came uh, down upon Him uh, like a dove. It wasn't a dove, but it was like a dove. It was visual. John the Baptist saw it. The Holy Spirit came down. He heard the voice. This is the Son of God. This is a reference to His baptism. And again, there are no disagreements about what is meant about the blood. This is, you know, the baptism inaugurated the, the ministry of Jesus. And the cross was the end of 
the ministry of Jesus. This is about the cross. And I don't have time to enumerate all the signs and wonders that God did around the crucifixion. You know, it's another 50 sermons. I don't have time, but suffice to say, there was a pagan Roman soldier who knew nothing about Jewish prophecy or Messiah, and he put it all together. And what did he say? Standing at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, what did he say? Surely this is the Son of God. Friends, not only has He come for you, He's left irrefutable evidence that He's come for you. And He's redeemed you and He loves you. What a beautiful thing for God to do. He not only came, He gave us evidence that He came. And He confirmed that He came. I love this text. I love it. I love it. This is no small, small matter for God. It's almost like God's on the witness stand to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And He says, here are my three witnesses. So what does verse 10 say about the man or woman who does not believe the testimony of God? Well, does verse 10 say, well, it's okay. You can get to God any way you want. Just dream it up. It doesn't matter. There are many roads to God. Is that what verse 10 say? What does verse 10 say? The man or woman who will not receive the testimony of God from the Scriptures, what is that man or woman saying back to God? Someone tell me from the text. You're a liar. So, can we be lovingly blunt for a minute? What is the atheist saying to God? What is the agnostic saying to God? What is the Muslim and the Hindu and the Buddhist and the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon saying to God when they reject the biblical account of Jesus Christ? What is the unbelieving Jew saying to God? What is the unregenerate Catholic and Protestant saying to God when they don't really believe the revelation of God in His Word? What does God say? This is not what Jim says. This is what God says. God says that man, that woman is calling me a liar. I had a young man one time when I used to be in business and I used to witness to him all the time. He worked in the warehouse, you know, and he says, I want God to prove Himself to me. You know what I said? He has. He has. You just don't believe Him. He has. Gave him Bible, you know. He worked hard on that guy. I, I sometimes think he's a Christian, you know. I sometimes think, or the, you know, I know he couldn't find me now. I used to wait for the phone to ring. We had some good discussions. I said, he has proved himself to you. He says, let God show himself to me. I says, he has shown himself to you. In the most breathtaking way. From a cross, he has shown himself to you. God says, men who reject my word and that my testimony in my word about my son, they have called me a liar. And I want to say to you, is there a greater arrogance? Can you think of a greater arrogance among men that we would stand before our creator and call him a liar? This is how God sees it. You know, we try to soften things up sometimes and, and with our apologetics and 
And uh, maybe sometimes that's wise, but, you know, friends, sometimes we need, to have, we need to love people enough to just tell them the truth. We need to say, hey, friend, you're calling God a liar. That's what you're doing. And I love you enough to tell you that. That you're on treacherous ground, rejecting the testimony of God about His Son. So there's, there's so much to say about this, but I'm going to move on. So we've seen that God has come for us God has given us His revelation regarding His coming. And lastly, I want to just for a moment spend some time on the fact that God is giving us life. It's His life. It's God-sized life. Verse 11 and 12. Let me just reread those. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Uh, seven years ago, yeah, seven years ago, almost to the day, I was standing down in that little bitty room uh, on, in the basement of this building, preaching my last sermon to the church. I was an interim at that time. We did a six-month interim here, and I was preaching my last sermon to them. And I wanted to say two things to them. I wanted to say two things to them because I knew none of these people would ever hear me preach again. Well, come, come, come to find out, one or two of them actually did because we came back, Right? which was just a, the providence of God. But I wanted him to hear two things. Two things I knew for sure as a 46-year-old man at that time. Or 48, whatever. Uh, yeah, 46. I wanted him to know at least two things. And my text was 1 John chapter 5, 11, and 12. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the life. That's my text. There is no life apart from Christ. And I'm not talking about inhaling and exhaling. I'm not talking about waking up in the morning. I'm not talking about having a pulse. I'm talking about the soulish life. I'm talking about the begotten of God life. The born from above life. The kind of life that God gives. I'm not talking about physical existence. I'm talking about the kind of life that only God gives. And I've told you many, many times that eternal life is not simply duration it just doesn't mean we're going to live a long time. What does it mean? It means we're going to live really big. It's not just length. It's height and depth and breadth. Okay? Don't ever forget that. I know you've heard me say it before. But don't forget that. That's the life we're called to. Fullness of life. God-sized life. You know, some people, they, they just can't envision how they can be satisfied forever. L listen, friend. <laughs> you will be. God is infinitely beautiful and wondrous, and glorious, and fascinating. You'll never grow weary of learning about Him and worshiping Him. There's a great book, I've mentioned it to you several times, The Sacred Romance by Brent Curtis and, and John Eldridge. And they say something in their book that I've always liked. They talk about how um, many, many Christians live just like the world. And they, they evoke the imagery of, of uh, Robinson Crusoe. Do you know the story? Daniel DeVoe's uh, famous novel about the shipwreck castaway. And he, he just tries to cobble together the best life he can uh, from the wreckage of the ship. And Brent Curtis and John Eldridge make this assertion that your average Christian lives just like that. Trying to cobble together the best life we can from the wreckage of the world. Friends, <laughs> that's not the life God has called us to. That's not the kind of life that God 
has called His kids to live. We're not just here to get by. We're not here to get comfortable. We don't ever settle for anything less than the life of God, the call of God, the work of God, the mission of God. And that was my second point that I shared with uh, that congregation seven years ago. Friends, not only can you not have life outside of Christ, in Christ you're supposed to live at large. That was my second point. We're called to be Hebrews 11 Christians. To live at large. Every day. Every day. To live the life of God. Every single day. What did we talk about the last time we were together? Anybody remember? This, this passage just dovetails from the last two verses we talked about last time. Remember? We are what? Does anybody remember what we are? The children of God? What are we? Nikkei. Nike. What does it mean? We have ultimate victory. We overwhelmingly overcome. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we are hyper-Nike. We are unconquerable. This is my, my two points to the church seven years ago. Life is in the Son, and He means for you to live it big. Not afraid, not wringing your hands, not intimidated. To live it large for the glory of Jesus Christ. We get what Paul's saying. We're, we're not just merely here to finish the race. What? <laughs> we're here to win it. <laughs> we're here to win it. We're here to win this race called the Christian life. You remember that great scene, I'm finished just about, almost. You remember that great scene in Pilgrim's Progress, right? The opening scene? The opening scene in Pilgrim's Progress? And Christian is standing there and he's reading the Bible and he's got this great burden and he runs into a man called Evangelist. And Evangelist says, Son, why do you look so, weird? Why do you look so miserable? And, and, and Pilgrim says, pardon me, uh, Christian says, Well, I've got this burden on my back and I understand from this book that, that if I die, I'll sink lower than the grave and sink into hell. And Evangelist says, Well, if that's your case, why don't you flee from the wrath to come? Isn't that great? Christian said, I would, but I don't know where to go. And what does Evangelist say? Evangelist points to the narrow gate way across the field. And Christian can barely see it. And he goes, flee to the narrow gate. Do you remember what Christian does? What does he do? Does he just kind of start meandering over to the gate? Boom! He takes off like a sprinter. He's going to the narrow gate. And you remember what happened? You remember his friends and family came out to watch him run. Is what the, the text says. What the book says. They came out to watch him run. And were they encouraging him? No. They were yelling at him to stop. Stop running like that. Stop running like a crazy radical man. Come back. Live comfortably with us. Make, make, uh, make peace with the world. Compromise with the world. Don't run like that. Friends, you're going to hear that. If you really run, if you're really running the race, you're going to hear that. You're going to hear that all the time. What did Christian do? Does anybody remember? He put his fingers in his ears and he just ran and he said, Life! Life! Eternal life! Friends, this is what God is calling us to. He means for us to believe that He's come for us 
He means for us to believe that his, about His testimony concerning His Son. And He mean, means for us to believe that He's given us uh, liberty to live a God-sized life. It's what Paul told Timothy. To lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you proactively with great purpose and vigor expending energy to lay hold of the eternal life to which God has called you? Friends, Christianity is no passive endeavor. And if you think it's a passive endeavor, you've not learned it correctly. It is no passive endeavor. It's not something we shine ourselves up for just on Sunday. We're supposed to live it radically every single day. Every single day. And that's God's challenge for us tonight. To live it really, 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 really big. Okay? To run the race, to win, to lay hold of the eternal life to which we were called. You remember when we were in Hebrews 11, I... I I shared this with you and I love it. We're supposed to be real men and real women believing a real God, having a real impact in the real world. That's what you're supposed to be. That's what I'm supposed to be. Nothing less, nothing less than that. I was driving and I'm almost done. I'm, I'm pretty much done. Uh, man, I got, I got three weeks of preaching all in me, you know. But really, I'm about done. I'm about done. Um, it's, it's hard for me when I don't preach. It's just bad. It's bad for people who have to live around me, too. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but Thursday, uh, Thursday, I was driving Karen to chemo, and, and I have to tell you, I, and I know it sounds hollow, but I told her if I could do it for her, I would do it. I would do it for her. And I don't say that to brag, but that's how I felt. And uh, we, uh, I, I strategically had a CD, CD in the CD player because I wanted, her, I wanted her to hear this song on the way there. And uh, one of our favorites, we actually had this song when we were here in 01, and we listened to it a lot. It's I Know Your Name by Michael W. Smith. And the song opens, the song opens with a Christian who is uh, confessing his pain and his, his hurt and his weakness and his struggle. And then the song rises and the chorus begins. And it's God's answer. The chorus is God's answer. <laughs> it makes me cry every time. God says, yes, I know your name. Every prayer you've prayed. Does anybody know this song? I'm the one who brought you to this place. And I wanted her to hear that. She knew it. But I wanted her to hear that. I'm the one that brought you to this place. I'm the voice who sings to you. I'm the hand that clings to you. Don't you love it? Oh, my child, I've always known your name. Never fear. I am here. This is what God is saying to us tonight. I have come for you. I have given you ample testimony that I have come for you. I love you with an imperishable love. And I give you my life. And I want you to go live it. 
So Christian friend, I want you to walk out of here. I want you to resolve that you're going to believe that God loves you. You're going to believe that He came for you. You're going to believe His testimony and all of His manifold promises. And you're going to live faith like you've never lived it before. You're going to live it huge. And you're going to magnify His Son in the eyes of an unbelieving world. That's the challenge. So go forth, church, and live your faith large in the world. Let's pray together. Beautiful Father. You've come for us. We believe it. We believe your witnesses. We believe the Spirit. We believe the water. We believe the blood. Our Messiah has come for us. Our groom has come for us. We are His bride. We are rescued. We are saved to the uttermost. And You have told us these things that we might live like fully persuaded Christians. Christians with no doubt. doesn't matter if it's hard or not. This doesn't matter. Temporal circumstance never matters. It's that you never change. Your purpose never changes. It's always to do good in the lives of His children. And we rest there and we trust that. And You've given us liberty to live Hebrews 11. Lord God, give us the faith and the courage to be men and women like that. May we simply believe and act every single day in every single circumstance. Simply believe and act and look forward to that beautiful day that we will stand before You. That awesome day, that unspeakable day, that inexpressible day of worship and wonder. We praise You, great God, that You've come for us and that You've given us testimony. We thank You for the life You've given us, that begotten of God life. May we be good stewards of it. May we lay hold. In Jesus' name, Amen.